Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Ladies and gentlemen, when you hear someone's about to do a lecture series, there are usually different types of responses. The most frequent response is one of complete boredom. You know, why, why, why would someone do a lecture series? I mean, let me hear Platt preach instead of Rainer lecture. You know, the, the, the choices are often, often stark. I hope that you will bear with me during this lecture series because in the two chapel sessions, when I am here in chapel today and again on Thursday, I will be sharing with you, yes, from a lecture perspective, but also from a pastoral perspective as well. When I meet tomorrow uh, with our smaller gathering and we, when we begin to talk about this issue that I'll introduce in just a moment, it will have more of the data, the facts, the things that are more typically associated with a lecture series. But I don't want to disappoint and to suggest for a moment that uh, this will not have some of the elements of lecture even in the presentation this morning. Here is where I'll be going, just to give you a roadmap for those of you who have any interest in going to all three of these points. The first one is just the general issue of change. Change in the church, change in culture, change in theological education. Just the broad rubric of change is what I'll be talking about this morning. Tomorrow morning, I will be giving a lot of data points related to change in education, specifically theological education, and some of the things that are taking place that are really just absolutely mind-boggling, not only at what is taking place, but at the pace of which that change is taking place. And then I'll come back on Thursday, and we'll talk about change in the local church. Again, when you begin to look at what has happened in the local church, particularly in the Western or American church, for the past 10 years, the rate of change has been unlike anything that we have seen or anything that we would have predicted regarding change in church practices, regarding change in culture, regarding change in just simply the way church life takes place. So the broad issue is change. The specific issues will be identified tomorrow and Thursday. Well, let's just talk about the broad issue of change for just a moment. And I'm going to ask you to find in the Word of God Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34 is probably one of the most paradigmatic moments of change in the history of Israel, the nation, the people of God. It is probably one of those moments that if you were to mark change moments in, a, in, in the people of God, this would be one of those, if it were on a graph, would spike for just a moment. Certainly, there was the moments that they went into Egypt for their protection. There is the change moment when they began to be slaves to Egypt. There's the change moment when Pharaoh was confronted and they exited Egypt. There was the change moment as they wandered in the wilderness. There was another change moment when they had the opportunity to go into the metaphorical promised land. There was another change moment when they are really about to enter. This is a nation that had been given all that God could have, should have, would have provided, but a nation again and again, a people of God 
that turned away from him. But this perhaps is one of the most paradigmatic moments because this is the death of their leader, Moses. Moses has died, and in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, we begin to hear what is taking place after the death of Moses. Let's just pick up in verse 6. Verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all of his officials, and all his land. And in all the, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The context is very clear. They are weeping, they are mourning for their leader. The one for whom there had never been a prophet in the land as great as he. The mourning took place for 30 days and then the days of mourning came to an end. The transition is prepared. Joshua, son of Nun, had been designated by God through Moses to be the successor. But this was not merely the moment of a new leader coming in. This was a moment of such significant change that perhaps if there had been an objective reporter on the scene, there would be questions about whether the people could actually handle this change. There's the emphasis about the greatness of Moses and how he was used by God and how he was taken away by God and how he was taken away even as a man of vitality and strength. We can only imagine what that moment was like, what those days were like when that official time of mourning was taking place. We can only imagine the deep grief accompanied by a sense of uncertainty. For they were not only going to be under a leader whom they obviously trusted, Joshua, but they were also going into a new place that had been promised to them. Indeed, a place that their forefathers and foremothers had had the opportunity to go in but did not. And now the time for the war to depart again, and it was time for them to enter this new land. There had to be anxiety, there had to be uncertainty in the midst of excitement. For those of you who've been called to international missions to go to the nations, you know what that is like when, when, when you are here in a place that you recognize and God has said, go there. But it's not limited merely to the nations. It's when you go into a local church as well. What will it be like? Will they accept my servant leadership? Will they follow? Will there be challenges? Will there be opportunities? Joshua 1 follows Deuteronomy 34. And in Joshua 1, you have some of the most amazing words that have ever been etched 
in Scripture. It picks up at verse 1 in Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Absolutely amazing words. Moses, my servant, is dead. Think of the rationale, if you would, behind those few words. Why would Joshua state such an obvious reality? Why would Joshua seem to put salt in the wound of the grief that these Jews felt? Why would Joshua announce something that everybody knew because for 30 days they had been mourning him? Their minds, their emotions, their total being was obviously focused upon what next? Why? Because we know that Moses is dead. The method that Joshua used at this very moment was a method to give them an awareness of the reality even though they knew it. It was a wake-up call to let them know that the times have changed and we will never go back to the way we were. It was a reminder that if we cannot live with the certainty of God, even in the midst of constancy of change, we cannot move forward. Moses, my servant, is dead. Allow me to take a detour for just a moment and to give an illustration of this change, not necessarily related to the church, but the application could apply to the church, to theological education, to you as well. I'm going to go back to a time that most of you would are not even existing at this moment. It was in 1988. For any of you who've read perhaps some of the cursory history of those years, there was an event that took place that is often not remembered. It was called the Yellowstone Fires of 1988. Specifically, it begins on July 22nd, 1988, in a national forest in Idaho adjacent to Yellowstone, where three workers are taking a break. They're smoking their cigarettes. They drop the cigarette butts on the ground, not cognizant of what was about to happen. Those three little cigarette butts ignited a fire that became one of the most massive fires, definitely in the history of Yellowstone and likely in the history of our entire nation. But if that was not enough, these workers at a national forest in Idaho dropping the cigarette butts, it was a month later, July 22nd, 1988, that a spark from a horseshoe in Montana set another series of fires. You had two different major fires that were erupting in two different parts of Yellowstone that would ultimately meet. And then came the date of August 22nd, often called Black Saturday for those who are aware of this moment, where an amazing windstorm took place, wind gusts up to 80 miles an hour. Three months later, the two fires had burned 1.3 million acres. 36% of all the Yellowstone acreage was gone. Two million tons of particulate released in the air. 4.4 million tons of carbon monoxide. 
Air pollution reached the East Coast and Texas. What was taking place during this moment? What was taking place in the minds of those whose role was to control the fires? For many years, the philosophy had been, let it burn. Anytime there was a fire, perhaps one of the best things to do was just let it to run its natural course. It would run into a boundary where it would stop. There would be a rain that would douse the flames. Something would take place. And that was always the philosophy from, for the last four decades, just to let it burn. But something had changed. Something significant had changed. When historians look back upon the Yellowstone fire of 1988, what these historians often point to are three cigarette butts and a spark by a horseshoe. And they point to that paradigmatic moment where the little spark or the little embers of the cigarette caused a flame that went uncontrolled for months and caused the greatest damage to that part of the land our nation had ever known. Many of the case studies that were written about the Yellowstone fire talked about these small things that started this massive fire. They talked essentially about the change elements that were present and how we have to deal better with change elements. We, we have to make certain that we have more signs that are up about cigarette butts and we have to make certain that if there's anything that can cause a spark, that we have to be careful to look to make sure that a spark was not left so that a fire may erupt. But in all of these studies, in all of these issues, in all of the landscape of why this fire started, almost everyone missed the point. You see, yeah, three cigarette butts and a horseshoe spark were identified as the causes. But here is the reality. Yellowstone would be struck by lightning quite often. And that would even be a greater spark than the cigarettes are the horseshoe. It was not the precipitating factors of little cigarette butts and a horseshoe that were the issues behind the change. What many had failed to look at, what th th this was the greatest drought, the driest summer in the history, the 112-year history of Yellowstone Park. It was a complete drought like no one had ever known before. All the focus was upon the precipitating factors. Very few recognized that the landscape had changed. What is taking place in our world, in the local church, which I will focus on Thursday, in learning institutions, which I will focus on tomorrow, is not just the arrival of the digital world. It is not merely new methodologies. It's not MOOC or some other form of delivery. Those are precipitating factors. What we need to realize is that the landscape has changed. 
And the likelihood is that it will never be the same again. When we begin to look at where we are right now, and I will go into this in, in just uh, more detail tomorrow, you, 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 you look at stages of change. And the, the first of these is often called the spark. Sometimes it's innovation. Sometimes it's an unmitigated factor that we could not have predicted. And next comes reluctant adoption. A few people want to try this new approach, this new, see what this new landscape is about. And then there's early adoption where some of the people began to catch and say, this, this is really working. And then there is growing adoption where more and more people and institutions say, this is where we need to be. But it's the last two stages that we often miss between right after growing adoption comes what I refer to as paradigmatic adoption a recognition that the landscape has changed, that it will never be the same again. And then the final stage is the new reality that will then take us to another round of change. Here is where we are in Christian life in the U.S. Obviously, this has specific implications for Western churches and Western institutions, though it could apply elsewhere. But here is where we are. We are right in between growing adoption and paradigmatic adoption. And what I am saying there is we have recognized what we think are some of the precipitating factors to all the change. We have recognized that there is a new digital reality. Whether we embrace it or not, we recognize the reality of it. We recognize that there has been culture shift we recognize that pastors are not held in the same esteem that they were 15, 10, or 20 years ago. We recognize all of these points. And what happens is we get to this point and we give a sigh of relief. Well, we made it through the change. And then the massive change takes place the paradigmatic adoption. This may be a little off topic and forgive me for reflecting upon my own world, but allow me to do so. I am CEO of a company called Lifeway. Lifeway Christian Resources of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are wholly owned by the SBC. We're fully accountable to our denomination. At the same time, Lifeway and its history since 1891 has not received outside funds. We have never received cooperative program funds. We do not seek donations. We call ourselves a ministry funded by a business model. Very simply stated, the ministry is first who we are, but we have to pay our own way. And sometimes those tensions are readily evident throughout Lifeway, certainly in my leadership. I am watching something right now that, yes, I saw the precipitating factors. I saw the little points of change, but something that is about to move into paradigmatic change. In July of 2016, a major marker took place. Amazon Prime was adopted by over 50% of all households in America. The projections were that 
Amazon Prime would be adopted by 2022 in all in the majority of households, but it happened six years earlier. We had been watching the digital landscape shift. We had been watching the world that we serve change, but it was at that very moment that you began to see an acceleration of something that had become incremental relatively. And that was the closing of brick and mortar retail stores. And now you're beginning to see the paradigmatic revolution take place. You're seeing retail as we know it be totally reshaped. The largest Christian retail chain in the world, Family Christian Stores, not only declared bankruptcy, but also liquidation. They no longer exist. And in the midst of this, I am CEO of a company where roughly 50% of our income comes from our stores. It is a paradigmatic revolution. Now, quite frankly, I have confidence that we will not only make it through this, but we will be encouraged by the results. But there are incredible challenges ahead for LifeWay as we move into this era where brick and mortar is definitely undergoing seismic shifts. Now, why do I say that? Not to bore you with the reality of LifeWay, but simply to say we think that this is about to happen, this being paradigmatic change in local churches and in learning institutions, including theological seminaries. We think that we have weathered much, weathered, if you will, sustained, even flourished the digital world, but we're about to see a shift both at the local church level and at the learning institutions like we have never seen before. Now, to be fair, going back to our text, and you, you, you see how I'm kind of mixing the text with a lecture. You know, some would say I'm taking a text and departing from it. I'm trying to be true to the word. But at the same time, let's go back to the text and let's look at the reality of what had not changed. What had not changed? God. God is still God. He is unchangeable. His people, his chosen ones. He still had his chosen people. His plan, his plan was to not, his plan would not be thwarted. His power, he would part the water as they walked right through it. His promises, God will see us through this. His faithfulness, he will not leave us nor depart from us. His protection, I love the last portion of that pericope of Chapter 1, ending at verse 9, often quoted, Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What else had not changed? His instrument of his leaders. He was still using leaders. His word had not changed. And his infusion of courage to his people. For those of you who are students who have entered the local church or about to enter the local church, you are in the midst of that paradigmatic revolution. You're in the midst of some of the greatest upheaval that we will have ever seen in the, at least the American history of the church. When we begin to ask church leaders, pastors, and other staff what it is that keeps them up at night, what is it that keeps them frustrated, oftentimes they'll 
talk about leadership issues. Oftentimes they'll talk about relational issues and critics. Many times they talk about family life and, and how to be the right type of husband or family person in the midst of all the demands of church life. But we're hearing more and more this simple issue, change. I've never seen change like this. Yeah, we know the constants. We hang to the word of God. We have total confidence in his truth and his person. But I don't know how to deal with all the changes going on. Here's what had happened. Something had happened with God's people. Moses, my servant, is dead. The landscape had changed dramatically. They would have a new leader and a new land. It would be unlike anything that they had seen heretofore. The landscape, like the Yellowstone Forest, had changed significantly. The landscape is about to shift dramatically in churches, seminaries, universities, learning institutions in general. If we thought that the change that we had seen to this point was dramatic or traumatic, the change that we're about to see is going to be a fundamental shift. The landscape has changed dramatically. How do I want to end this before we go tomorrow to looking specifically at learning institutions and then coming back in here Thursday and looking at changes in the local church? How do we need to look at this as God's servants, God's leaders in these places where God has called us? There's an admonition that is, if not implicit, if not explicit, definitely implicit in Deuteronomy 34 and Joshua 1. Hear these admonitions. Admonition number one, hold on to that which is unchanging. It can be easy to chase the latest fad, the latest development, and to try to go into this direction or that direction. And there's sometimes we do need to move out in other areas, but hold on to that which is unchanging. Remember what happened with the early followers of Christ when there began to be a crisis in the church where the Grecian widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They appointed seven to look after this task, and then in Acts 6, 4, but we will give our attention to what? prayer, and the ministry of the word. That truth is still truth today. The inerrant word of God speaks to you in 2017. Hold on to that which is unchanging. Secondly, though, let go when it's time to let go. There's some things that are changing they're not manifestations of that which is unchangeable. They're not God himself, which is unchangeable. There's some things that we hang on to. Let, let, me, let me just give you an example. Uh, Dr. Aiken mentioned the podcast, Rainer on Leadership. Right now at Rainer on Leadership, there's a podcast that is being downloaded so many times. I do not say that merely to say that it is a successful podcast. I'm talking about the issue today. And it's interview that Jonathan and I have with Mike Harlan and we're talking about how to have a worship service that is unified for all the members instead of fragmented 
And one of the things that we talk about is a willingness to let go by some, willingness to let go by others, and to focus upon that which really matters. The issue of change is obviously at the forefront of many church people because they are grabbing that and saying, what do I need to learn and where do I need to go? Third truth is this, do not get comfortable. You have heard your president say in multiple chapels, graduation multiple times, are you willing to go? Are you willing to go to a place that is a place, at least from a human perspective, of total discomfort? Are you willing to go? That certainly applies when we go to the nations, but it also applies when you go to a local church here in America. Don't get too comfortable with the way that you've always done it. Don't get too comfortable with that which brings you the greatest ease. Do not get too comfortable. Joshua said to all the people, Moses, my servant, is dead. A reminder, we can't hang on to that which we're supposed to let go of. Do not get too comfortable. Fourth, lead change. Do not merely be reactive to change, but lead change. There are several ways that we can do that. I'm not going to take the time of this portion of the lecture to address it to you. I'll do that for our institutions tomorrow and churches on Thursday. But be ready to lead change. A little book I wrote not too long ago was called Who Moved My Pulpit? The story starts off with a, with a pastor who had this massive edifice that was such a big pulpit, you could hardly see him behind it. And he just made the decision after being at the church for seven years that he would move the pulpit. He thought it would be uneventful. He had the trust of the people. He asked some people to help him move the pulpit. He put a smaller lectern up there, and uh, he went to church that next Sunday. By that Sunday afternoon, the church had blown up. There were meetings galore. His deacons and his elders had called a meeting. What happened to the pulpit? There were emails that were some of the most vicious verbiages that you could imagine. He almost lost his job. He barely survived. He did, but it took him about two years to get over just moving a pulpit. Now, the rest of the story is he came back the following Sunday and they had moved the pulpit back without his knowledge. And that's when he cried out, who moved my pulpit? Lead change. Don't merely be reactive to change. Be proactive to what you see and the directions that you can go. Fifth truth in this, and this is just so self-evident, trust God. Trust God. We don't trust methodologies. We don't trust current trends. We don't trust the changing landscape. We trust God. A sixth admonition that is evident throughout Joshua 1 is be courageous. Be courageous. I love the admonitions to be courageous. It's usually accompanied with words like this, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How can we have fear when he is with us? How can we fear when he is the source of our strength, when he deals with the change for us? Be courageous. And the seventh admonition is to go. The first time they were unwilling to go into the promised land. 
That's when the spies came back and gave a majority and a minority report. The majority report was, nope, can't do it. Big fortifications, giants, they'll smash us like gnats. Can't go in there. The minority report was, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord God has promised us that he will be with us. Surely we can take this land. The majority won. Most of the people died and their carcasses rotted in the wilderness. And a new generation has a new opportunity to go. You, students, not to exclude faculty and administrators, but you, students, are at that paradigmatic moment. You're about to enter church life, mission world. Perhaps many of you are already there. But you're at a time where you're about to see some of the most significant upheaval that perhaps our churches and our institutions have never, ever known. How do you feel about it? I'm just excited. I do not see it as an obstacle or a challenge as much as I do an opportunity. This is an our opportunity to say we don't trust in things and methods and ways. We trust in God. And we're about to move forward and see what he will do. Moses, my servant, is dead. Some of the most amazing words of Scripture. Words that remind me again and again that we're to let go even as we hold on to God. Not too long ago, I was in a church. I have the awesome opportunity of sitting under the preaching of my son, a graduate of Southeastern Seminary, Jess Rayner, the brother to Art Rayner, your vice president, who is loving his time here at Southeastern. And as we were singing, we sang a song about fear. We sang a song that you have sung many times about slaves to fear. And we talked about how we will not be fearful, how we will move forward because we are children to God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Change is coming faster than we've ever seen it. But God is on his throne and he is not changing. Pray with me. Lord, I guess you put a choice before us. Will we be fearful or will we be courageous? It is my prayer for me and the leadership roles that you have given me, for pastors and staff, for missionaries, for faculty and administrators, that we will look at this changing world with the eyes of courage and that we will move forward knowing that you are never changing, even in this ever-changing world. May we no longer be a slave to fear, but may we be reminded that we are children of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, We hope that you consider us. 
If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.